All right, well, um, I'm going to continue this series. I didn't know it was a series last week, but I guess it is a series on the sovereignty of God. And last week we looked at God's sovereignty over creation. We mentioned uh, several miracles in the Bible that God did that superseded nature. For example, the parting of the Red Sea, water coming out of a rock, and oil continually flowing from that jug or jar for the widow. Uh, and many, many more. God is just amazing over the things that he can do. We also looked at four, four huge stars last week, including the sun, just how big they are compared to the earth. And according to Psalm 33, 6, God made the heavens and the earth with the breath of his mouth. So these planets, solar systems, galaxies, he just went and let there be, and it just came out of his mouth. I mean, that's just amazing how big our God is. So our God is a, a star breather or a planet breather. Our God is absolutely amazing. So we looked at God's sovereignty over a creation. Today we're going to look at God's sovereignty over time. Over time, okay? Uh, we probably all know the song, How Great Is Our God. We sang it last Sunday. And one of the lines in that song says, Age to age you stand and time is in your hand, beginning and the end. Even time is in God's hand. You know, he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He created time, but he's not bound by time. He's the Alpha and the Omega at the same time. He doesn't need a time machine. He's in time at the beginning and the end at the same time. He just supersedes our brain waves to be able to, uh, quantum physics, whatever you want to talk about it. He, he just supersedes time. So time, you know, what is time? We think about time. It's, uh, we got 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour. We got 24 hours in a day, 365 days a year, except when it's Marshall's birthday, and then you get an extra day uh, that year, leap year. And then um, 365 of those days are divided into seasons and months. And God made these, this mastermind genius of God, he made these seasons, these days, these times for a reason. We read this last, we're going to read it again to you, but Genesis 1.14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. Why? To divide the day from night. And let them be for signs and seasons for days and years. So God made time, but in, when he made time, he made stars and planets. And he put this ginormous calendar or clock in the, in the solar system. A ginormous, huge clock and calendar, okay? People for centuries have been able to tell you what time of day it is just by looking up at the sun. I don't know if I can do that. I don't, haven't really tried to do that. I just look at my watch or my phone. But people could do that. People could look at a sundial, a shadow on the ground off a sundial, and tell you what time it was. Some people that study the stars and know them well could look up at the stars and tell you what season it is just by that. Oh, we're in fall because I can see this constellation. This constellation's over here or over there. Some people that study that, they know those things. For me, I just know it's cold. It must be fall or winter. And look on my calendar. But before they had calendars and printing paper and things like that, they could tell just by looking up the stars because God created them to be signs and seasons and times. So God made this mathematical calculator, calculated of planets and stars, and they all had their individual orbits. And, and it's a mastermind of what he did. was Each one has its exact orbit. And if he didn't make it that way, we'd be having stars, shooting stars all the time, falling into us, and the planet wouldn't have lasted as long as it did because this planet, Jupiter, would have hit Mars or something. It would have come crashing down into us. But he, all things are sustained by the power of his word. And he said, put, he puts them in this orbit and says, you stay there. And they just move in that orbit and they stay there. Because that's how big your God is, amen? I don't know if anybody else thinks that's cool, but I think that's really, really cool. That our God is just so powerful. He just speaks and it just 
take that. It's, I don't care what anyone says. I'm, God says it, and it's, it's there. So, so God does honor time. He made time. I think he does keep a close watch on the calendars and seasons and special events and times, but he's not bound by it at all. Okay? It's hard on our brains. But it's kind of like the thought of, you know, you can talk to atheists and people that don't believe in God. They'll say, well, well who created, you, you argue with them, well, well, who created the two rocks that bang together for evolution and stuff like that? And you'll say, well, who created the rocks and who did this? Well, who created God? Well, it's, to me, it's much easier to believe that God was just there than to believe the two rocks were randomly just there. Then God showed up sometime later because two rocks banged in together. Or, well, there's no such thing of God. No, there's no way you can look at the stars, the universe, the galaxy, their orbits, your eyeball, the, the, all the different beautiful things of design, and not know without any doubt there's a creator who made that creation. And it's God, and he's absolutely amazing. So again, he honors times and seasons. He set those signs of those in the heavenlies. But there's special days that he makes uh, the, that um, he does special things on. Now, many Jewish scholars believe that March 25th was one of those very special days. Your mom, you're watching that was the day my parents were married, 1970, I think it was. Um, it's also days Jewish scholars believe was the creation of the world on March 25th. They believe Adam and Eve fell on March 25th. Now, I don't know where they get this information from, if it's just Jewish literature and uh, uh, ancient materials. I don't know, but this is what I've read. They also believe it's the day Abraham nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. They believe that it's the day the Israelites were set free from Egypt. They believe it was the day on which Christ was uh, conceived and also the day that he was crucified, all March 25th. Now, again, I'm not sure about all that or how they come up with that, but that's what uh, Jewish scholars believe. Now, according to there's other other examples like that in the Bible too. Genesis 8:4 tells us that Noah's ark came to rest on the on Mount Ararat on um, the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the seventh month on the Mount of Ararat, which is also the, during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And then Solomon dedicated the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. Jewish was, Jesus, excuse me, was uh, translated on most likely during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's also believed by scholars that John the Baptist was born at that time. So even though we have this 365 days of, of the year, there's certain days and seasons that he's marked as special for whatever reason. Or think about this. Jesus was crucified on the exact day of the Feast of Passover, wasn't he? He says again and again, get prepared for the feast, prepare for the feast, they're getting ready for it. Then Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the, of the Feast of First Fruits. He was the first fruits of many brothers raised up from the dead. The, unless the seed dies and it's thrown into the ground, there won't be more harvest. He was the first seed to die, and now there's a harvest. Jesus also was placed on the cross at 9 a.m., the time of the morning sacrifice. And he, it says he died at 3 p.m., which is time of the evening sacrifices. There's no way you can tell me those things are coincidence. So God created this calendar of time and space in the, in the sky and in in what we live by. And, but he also does these amazing things specifically on those dates and prophesied about a lot of them many, many years before they even happened. The, the, um, the IQ of God is not, you're not able to calculate. There's nobody can, all right? So Galatians 4 says this, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, which we were worshiping and thanking God for this morning. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. God had a plan in the beginning. God has a plan for the middle. And God has a plan for the end. 
Okay, we're talking. About, we're going to talk a little bit about the end uh, at the end of this message, but uh, it might not be exactly the way you've been told. Okay, I'm going to present some things, and it's up to you whether you want to receive them or not. We still be buddies and friends, and that's okay. It's it's because it's, it's a non, as uh, what's the word they use in the Presbyterian Church? Not a non-factor, but a non-essential. Thank you. That is non-essential. Like it, uh, we can people can have different eschatology, which is study the end times, and still be buddies, right? Except if you go to the church down the road, that's King James only, 1611, uh, premillennial, uh, uh, post-tribulation, or else you can't come to our church. You know, but I don't know. That's what it says on their sign, and whether they hold up that, I don't know. But God has a plan, and he sticks to his plan. But he also sometimes randomly, super, it seems random to us, he supersedes time itself. I mentioned this last week. Uh, about the example how God caused the sun to stand still so Joshua and his men could win this battle. That's absolutely amazing. Now, in my mind, for God to cause the sun to stand still, most likely the plant, earth had to stand still. Most likely uh, the moon and all the other planets, stars, probably the whole solar system probably shut down like, wait. God said, wait, and nothing's moving. Can you imagine that? Because if they didn't stop everything, other things are going to eventually collide into each other because they're going to be out of orbit and out of this uh, clock that God created. So when God stopped the sun for almost a full day for Joshua, I think he probably stopped the entire solar system of the whole universe until it was done. That's pretty dang amazing, don't you think? He just says, pause, push a little pause button on your remote control or whatever God does. He is just that powerful. He can just stop it all uh, in a moment. Um, and, and you know that was one. Of the, that was the longest day I think, as far as I know, in the creation of the world and since the beginning of the world. It kind of feels like to me, like the day Jordan and I were in India. It was his twelfth birthday. And it was my thirty-eighth birthday a few days ago, and it, it's a ten and a half hour time difference to India. So when you fly home, it's about a sixteen-hour flight from Delhi to DC. So when you fly home, there's only been about five, five and a half hours of difference in the time, American side of the time, even though you really were 16 hours on that plane. And you feel it, too. And it's 16 hours on that plane. So that was the longest birthday we ever had by far. But for Joshua and, and his men, the time didn't change at all. Not five and a half hours, not a minute. It just stopped until it was over. That's, that's awesome. right? Another example of that is found in 2 Kings 20. 8 through 11, <coughs> excuse me, this is Hezekiah. This is after he was crazy, out in the, out in the, out in the field, eating grass like a cow, mooing. Uh, he, went, he went crazy because the guy thought he was, he, he took pride in himself of being king. and didn't realize that God gave him that, and he just got arrogant and prideful, and God caused him to be very humble. Wouldn't want that to happen to you, so piece of advice. Humble yourself, the mighty hand of God, he exalted you in this season. God opposed the proud, gives grace to the humble. But this is a little bit after that, and Isaiah comes to visit him. Verse 8. Hezekiah asked, asked Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? Isaiah answered, This is the Lord's sign to you, that the Lord will do what he's promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or shall it go back ten steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps. I don't know why he thinks that. It says, I can't make the shadow move 10 steps unless I'm walking. But uh, Hezekiah said, rather, have it go back 10 steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called on the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the 10 steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So 
Okay, they're in this room. I'm picturing this. Isaiah's talking to him. Maybe they're outside. I don't know. Somewhere there's, they're near steps anyway. And they see this shadow of something, a tree or something, hitting the wall. And he said, which do you want this shadow to do? Go up the steps, up by 10 steps, or go down by 10 steps? And this is a sign God did for Hezekiah just to show him that he's honest and truthful and he's going to heal him. He didn't have to do that. But to give him a sign that he was going to heal him, he said, you pick. You want him to go up or down? He goes, oh, how about down? And next thing you know, this shadow moves from the, this step going back down 10 steps, and it just moves. Now, the science of that is absolutely amazing. Either God spoke to that individual shadow, which shadows are just, uh, you know, a shadow from light. You know, it's a, your shadow on the wall or whatever. Like I can see mine kind of over here. Uh, either God said, shadow, you move, go down 10 steps, and then it just vanished and goes back to where it was. Or God once again caused the earth to rotate a certain amount of percentage to go back in its orbit, uh, just enough so it goes back 10 steps. And then he would have had to move the whole universe at the exact same time so there wasn't any collisions going on later to make it all work out. Just to show Hezekiah that God is truthful, faithful, he holds to his word, and he's going to do what he said. He's going to heal him. Is that wild? I personally think he moved everything again, like he did before, because the, the other one is harder on my brain, I guess. But uh, God that you serve is absolutely amazing. If he had the plan in the beginning of time, before there was time, uh, he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, before there was clocks, before there was sun, moon, and stars, God had a plan of how he's going to save mankind. Before there was a problem, uh, God had a solution. Amen? All right, so either way, whatever way that happened, it's absolutely amazing. But um, God is absolutely sovereign over everything, including time. And sometimes for me, knowing that helps me just to chillax a bit. Just chill out. It's going to be okay. Because I can't figure everything out. I can't control this. I can't control that. I can't make things happen. I want to make happen. Um, there's certain things we can do. We all have our limits, right? We do what we can. But God is sovereign over everything, including time. Listen to this verse from Matthew 1.17. It's amazing how God does this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity of Babylon into Christ are 14 generations. Now, this is not a coincidence, okay? Think about all the factors involved in those 14 times 3 generations to make all those things happen in line around that same time. You're talking about people's free will, their choices, their mistakes, their rebellion, and God factored everything into every equation and still caused them to happen in 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He even moved Babylon to come capture Israel at that time. All those things happen. Man, God is absolutely amazing. Now I want to make mention of this um, as a way of free will there. Just because God knows everything that's going to happen because of his foreknowledge doesn't mean he predetermines everything that happens. I want to just say that because if he predetermines everything that happens, then there's really no sense of us ever praying, reading your Bible, preaching, teaching, everything. If it's case sarah, sarah, everything's going to be that's going to be, and we're just floating around in space and eating food and hanging out with each other until it's time to die, then there's not really much part of a, of a real big picture that we're involved with. But if we're to co-labor with Christ, and if our free will lay down to him and yield to him, uh, you know, it's, then we can partner with him and do what he's doing. So... It's easier for God to predict dates, like prophetic words, than it is for a weatherman in every county to tell us what the weather's going to be tomorrow. It just is, because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end at the same time. 
So prophesying for God is just like, it's not even like, I hope this one works. He's factored it all in before he said it. Moses' rebellion. Moses killing one of, his, one of the uh, Egyptian men. Moses doing this. All these things he factored, all, David's stuff that he did, he factored it all in. And guess what? He factored your stuff in too. He factored my stuff in, our stuff in, our doubt, unbelief, everything. He factored it all in to the end. He factored it all into the beginning. He's going to factor it all into the end, okay? And I tell you, what I believe is God has one glorious plan when he wraps this thing all up. You know, ever since, I don't know, gosh, ever since Jesus came to the earth, people were thinking that they were the last generation. I mean, in John's day, they were saying, they were telling people in the church that the rapture already happened. And they're all scared. And John said, hey, listen, don't believe them. That hasn't happened. Uh, it's, this, this is going to happen first before those things happen and all this stuff. But people have always believed that they're the last generation because we're self-centered and egotistic. And the whole world revolves around us. We are the sun, moon, and stars. We are, we are the planets and everything. We, the whole world revolves around us. We think it has to be our generation because we're special. Right? In 88, they had the book out, 88 Reasons Why Christ Has Come Back in 88. And now there's wars, rumors of wars, just like there were in World War One and Two and Vietnam and everything else. It doesn't mean anything. It means we could, be, we could be there, but we might not be. It could be 100 years away. It could be tomorrow. I don't know. But I think sometimes we can look at those things too much and not be focused on the things God asks us to do and be too worried about tomorrow. But I tell you, if God had a plan in the beginning, he has a plan for tomorrow. I want to show you a couple examples from prophecy, how different prophecies that God gave, just two of them. And we're going to look at those, one briefly, a little, little, one a little bit more in depth, and uh, just how amazing, uh, even with timelines, how God prophesied these things were going to happen. The first one is about Abraham in the book of Genesis. God comes to Abraham in whatever form, we're not sure in this story, but he, he just can do what he wants. He's, there's a verse that says that, I can't remember what it is, but it says, I am Lord God, I do what I want. <laughs> That's a good, good uh, a benefit of being God, I guess. So um, he comes to Abraham and tells him, listen, years from now, your children are going to, your ancestors are going to rebel. And I'm going to cause them to be uh, soldiers and to go into captivity by this uh, other country. And they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But when they come out, they're going to come out with great possessions. This happened, God told Abraham that 500 to 600 years before it actually uh, started to happen. Okay? That's amazing. I mean, America is what, uh, is nowhere near 500 years old as far as an actual country. It's been around since the, in the beginning. But um, it's, it's amazing. Let me show you how this, how this happened in Exodus 12, 1441. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on the very day. Do you see that? Not around that time, in that general time frame, or somewhere along that counter time. On the very day, they came out. Uh, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, the armies of the Lord referring to all the children of Israel that came out. So, not around that season or time, on the very day. God has a plan. Amen? So, I'll show you another example. Um, this one is a little more, um, can be controversial, but I don't think it needs to be. I just think we need to rightly divide the word of truth. I think there's a lot of good Bible teachers out there, and they, some, but they sometimes... They take the Bible to try to prove a point they're trying to make and not let it just flow in the context of what it's actually saying. And I think as we read this together, you will see that I'll just, I'll just pop the bubble at first. 
There is, as far as I know, and if there's more, you guys can send me the notes, and I'll, I will tell everybody next week. But as far as I know, there's only one verse in the Bible that people use for a tribulation period. There's one. It's in Daniel 9. We're going to look at it, okay? And in Daniel 9, it's totally taken out of context. It is not what it's talking about at all. And I'm going to show it to you. I mean, I think it's be, I believe it will be really clear to you that this is not what it's talking about. Now, I'm not saying there's no rapture. The rapture is clearly in the Bible. It's, you can see with Enoch. You can see with Elijah. You can see other scriptures about in a twinkling of an eye. We called up together to meet the Lord in the air and stuff like that. But a seven-year tribulation period, that's not, that's not in the Bible. Okay? And I will publicly repent next Sunday. If you can prove it to me before next Sunday, I will do it. But I'm going to show you today, it's not there. Man made that up. I wasn't John Hagee. It wasn't any of those other guys. And I love all those guys. I, listened to, I bought those DVDs. I watched them all. I shared them with some of you guys. I like them. It's really good study. But th- that, there, the expectation of a seven-year tribulation caused the church to be weak and feeble and just ex- a, a, a negative expectation of good when the Bible says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for us to make his enemies his footstool. Not for the enemies to get stronger, for the enemies to get weaker become under his feet. We're to put them under his feet. That's, we're to occupy until he comes. We're, we're going from glory to glory, not more depression to more depression. And I think when the church believes the church is supposed to go weaker and weaker and weaker, we're going to become weaker and weaker and weaker because we are what we believe. But if we have correct eschatology about what God's actually saying here, I think it makes a big difference. Okay, so I'm not going into whole rapture and all that stuff, and there's a lot of other verses I can do, but just, just showing Daniel 9 for today because this does factor time. What you believe about tomorrow affects how you feel about today. You know, in, in 88, a lot of people uh, got credit cards and they maxed them out. They bought new houses, trucks, all stuff. We're getting raptured anyway. The world's coming in. And guess what? When it didn't happen, they went into serious debt and had a great financial trouble because some pastor told them it was going to happen in 88. Just like a few years ago when they, that old man in, where it was, Texas or somewhere out west, told him that the world was going to end on this date. And then he goes, wait, I did my math wrong. He came back and he calculated, stop. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. No one knows, okay? So let me get into it. I'm a little soapbox here a little bit more than I realized. But uh, let me get into the word here. Well, I want to show it to you, Daniel 9. So um, start verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for the people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So we'll stop right there and just ask you these questions. Who is this talking about? Yes, it's the Sunday school answer, Jesus, okay? Uh, Who made an end of sin? Okay, who made reconciliation for sin? Who brought in everlasting righteousness? Okay, who sealed up or completed or fulfilled the prophecies and visions from the Old Testament? Who are all those visions prophecies about? Who are they about? Jesus, right? And who is the most holy who is going to be anointed? Okay, so the context of these, this scripture is Jesus. The Antichrist is not mentioned anywhere in the whole chapter. Okay, just so you know. We'll go to 25. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks or sixty in sixty-two weeks. The street shall be uh, built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. 
So this actually took place, and this is referring to Nehemiah. Remember, they were in Babylon in captivity. He goes to the king. This is in uh, Ezra. I have it in my notes somewhere. I'll get to tell you a little later, but it's in Ezra. And uh, anyway, um, he's in, and Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. Remember, the streets are rebuilt, and the people try to come and attack them while he's rebuilding the wall. It's, it's, tr- it's uh, troubling times. So the time, from the time the announcement was made that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt until the Messiah comes will be seven weeks or, and 62 weeks. Now, it wasn't literally seven weeks. Most scholars believe that seven weeks are more, referring to seven years, and 62 weeks means 62 years. So seven weeks would be 49 years, and 62 weeks would be 434 years. I was just seeing what you guys were looking at because I, was like, I wasn't sure what he had on there. So that totals 483 years. So to reiterate, Gabriel prophesied that from the time the announcement was made that they were going to rebuild Jerusalem to the time Christ came on the scene was going to be 483 years. Okay? Do you guys agree? That's what I mean, you can study out the seven-year thing yourself, but everywhere, every commentary in uh, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, any one I've ever read said they believe that the weeks are referring to years. That's not really debated. So the other part is debated is who's the, who they're talking about. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not from him, for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle, this is the part where they think, they, they think that he here is referring to the Antichrist. And I'm going to show you that he here is referring to Jesus. Okay? The whole context was Jesus the whole time. Antichrist is not mentioned one time. Okay, just, just stay with me. So then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And the, and the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now aren't you glad you weren't the one who wrote that? You're just like, what and the what? What what did he what? What did he say? So um, basically he's going to say there's going to be some war, devastation, people are going to die, and that kind of stuff in there. But there's a lot going on here. We're not going to look at it all. But I want to point out that a lot of the church world believes from these verses that that verse that he mentioned there is referring to the Antichrist. There's going to be this seven-year tribulation period, and that's the only verse they have in the whole Bible to, to, to talk about that. And everyone you in here has heard that theology. Everyone in here, I, I, I can guarantee it, because uh, that is probably 99%, if not 100% of the churches have taught that. I heard it in Bible college, I heard it in my church, I heard it um, on TV, different things, but uh, I don't believe that's what it's talking about at all, okay? First of all, Gabriel gave a, a, a precise timeline for the coming of the Messiah, didn't he? Okay, Gabriel said, for the time the announcement was made that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt, until the Messiah comes will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 483 years. So in 457 B.C., the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, whoever you say that, decreed that, you know how to say it? Yeah, that guy. Uh, he he uh, said they can return to their homeland was 457 B.C. Was when he said, Jews, you're not in slavery anymore. You can leave. You can go back and rebuild. And I actually gave them finances to help rebuild it. Here's my notes, Ezra 7, 12 through 26. You want to see where this happened? That's what happened. Well, that was 457 B.C. Now, if we add 483 years that Gabriel said to that number, we come to the year A.D. 27. Can you guys follow this? I hope you find it cool, okay, because 
I think it's cool because it's important to know what he's talking about here. Okay? So if, if we add, okay, many believe that Jesus was born around 4 B.C., which means that he was 30 years old at A.D. 27. The very time where he announced his public ministry, the very time he was baptized, and after he was baptized, then he started, he went to be tempted, and after that time, he started his ministry and started doing miracles and telling who, that he was the Christ, okay? Gabriel went on to tell what would happen next. After that, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. And... and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So this verse tells us the Messiah is going to be cut off or killed somewhere along that time frame. It said they're going to announce to go back to Jerusalem. Then they're saying the Messiah is going to be uh, revealed. Then they're saying he's going to be killed. Okay. Now verse, and then sometime later this, the, the temple and all of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again. So it's going to be rebuilt. Jesus comes. He dies. And then later at some point, the whole area is destroyed again. Verse 27. And he... This time with Jesus, I believe, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even to the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So for those who believe in, a, again, the seven-year tribulation, that he here they're saying is the Antichrist. Even though in the whole chapter of Daniel 9, it doesn't mention the Antichrist or hint towards him one time that I can see. But we did see, just in those three verses, it talked about Jesus quite a bit, didn't it? It talked about Jesus a lot, that he was going to come, he was going to come to the earth, he's going to be anointed, all those things, he's going to be killed, all those things were talking about Jesus. So he is a subject of what's going on there. So, but they believe that in the middle of the seven-year period, that they're going to break this covenant, that, they, that the Antichrist is going to break this covenant that he made with the people, the Jews, and then he's going to attack them. But in the verse, it didn't say that he was, the person was going to break the covenant, did it? Put 27 up there for me again, will you? It doesn't say anything about anybody breaking a covenant. It says he would confirm the covenant. All right, you've heard that your whole life. That there's three and a half year period. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years, okay? All right, here it says he's going to confirm the covenant. Even told the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to make this covenant with Jerusalem, and then in three and a half years he's going to change his mind and break his word, and he's going to start attacking them, killing them, all that kind of stuff. That isn't what it even says. It says he's gonna, the person's going to confirm the covenant. What's the covenant? It's the new covenant. It's the new covenant established in his own blood. This is talking about Jesus, amen? It really is. If you can't say amen yet, hold on, I hope you will. So, um... The problem with interpreting verse 27 this way, that it's the Antichrist, is that there's this massive 2,000-year gap between the first 483 years to fulfill the 490 years. And Gabriel never mentioned a gap. There's no scripture that talks about any kind of gap. Theologians said there's a gap. Everything happened in succession, again and again, it happened right in a row, just the way Gabriel said, and now we're supposed to believe there's a 2,000-plus-year gap before this happens? Hmm, might not be true. You get me? Like, why? if it was supposed to happen that way, he said, this is, this is going to happen for the Jews, 490 years. But then all of a sudden, we're saying, but now there's a 2,000-year gap. No, there was no gap, okay? I'm going to show you that. So, again, it's important to know that, um, let me skip down a bit here. 
So if the last seven years of Gabriel's prophecy began immediately after, I'm looking at this, if Jesus is the he referred to there. If the last seven years of Gabriel's prophecy began immediately after the first 69 weeks, then that began in AD, 70, AD 27, excuse me, the year Jesus was baptized. And if the he spoken of here in this verse referred to Jesus, excuse me, the he spoken of here refers to Jesus, not the Antichrist. After all, the Messiah was the main subject in the previous two verses. Verse 25 said the Messiah would come. Verse 26 said the Messiah would be cut off. And also it's important to note that Jesus' public ministry was three and a half years, that he is the one who confirmed the covenant. The Antichrist doesn't confirm the covenant. Jesus confirmed the covenant. On the night, the last night, the Lord's Supper he took last week, he said, this is the new covenant established in my blood right before he was killed. And, and, and that he is the one, according to Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, he is the one who did away with temple sacrifices, not the Antichrist. Okay? Jesus, according to Hebrews 8 and eight and 9, he is the one who uh, ended temple sacrifices by the sacrifice of himself. We no longer need to kill bulls and goats anymore because Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. Amen? That's the whole part of the new covenant. So to me, this just makes a lot more sense. So... This perspective covers the first three and a half years. Let me show you the last three and a half years just briefly. Some of you guys are loving it. Some of you guys are uh, still recovering from all the turkey you ate and having your turkey comas. But um, after the three and a half years, Jesus now, he, he died for us. He's resurrected. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. He's waiting for us to make his enemies his footstool in this uh, timeline that God has set up. And then, so Acts 2, we know the Holy Spirit was poured out and powered the church. And then Peter preached his first sermon, and 3,000 people are saved in one day. Later, another 2,000 are added. The church is growing leaps and bounds, and the government doesn't know what to do with them. They're freaking out. What do we do with these guys? All they know about them, they're untrained men, but we know they've been with Jesus, and they're changing the world. So I want to show you in uh, Acts 2, 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So great grace was upon the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, most people that study that 490 years that Gabriel prophesied about call that the years of the, of the Jew, favor for the Jews. And here it says they had great favor with all the people. So for three and a half years after uh, Jesus was, went to heaven, there was great favor on the land. There are people getting saved all the time. They're baptizing people. Uh, all these things are happening. Then after a while, by the time you get to chapter 6, some of the religious leaders don't really like how popular the disciples are becoming and how fast the church is growing. And they start making this scheme of how they're going to fix this. Okay, that's when Paul comes on the scene. That's when we see the death of Stephen when he was stoned. And many scholars believe that Stephen was stoned approximately three and a half years after Christ was resurrected and went to heaven. There's three and a half. There's three and a half. Christ confirmed the covenant. But guess what? He still confirmed the covenant for the whole week, the whole seven days, because after he was already resurrected, there was still signs, wonders, and miracles. There was still people getting raised from the dead. There's people getting healed. The church was growing by 5,000 plus, being added to the church daily. Those are getting saved. There was supernatural time of favor. And then all of a sudden, seven years is up, and then persecution breaks out, and the church is scattered all over the place. And, um, and after that time also, God starts telling uh, Saul's on his way to Damascus. He has this encounter with God. He's knocked off his donkey, or he's walking, whatever it doesn't really say, but he's knocked to the ground, okay? He gets up, and he's blind, and God prays for him, he's healed, and God tells him that he wants him to be an apostle to who? 
the Gentiles. Never before that had that ever happened in the history of the world. He sent the, the, the best apostle, the, most, the one who wrote most of the New Testament, to us. Not before then, but after that seven-year time frame. Okay? After the, the years of favor the Jews was completed. Now the Jews still have favor, but we have favor along with them. Because the two have become one. It's not a replacement theology. It's the two have become one. One man in Christ. Both Jew and Gentile. At, shortly after Paul had this uh, encounter with God, he was called to the Gentiles. Peter had this same thing happen to him. You remember he was waiting on lunch? He was hungry, like some of you are. Like, oh, when's food going to be ready? He's like, oh, man. And all of a sudden he has this vision. He's thinking it must be his mind because he's hungry. He has this vision of these animals coming down and seeing these four-foot animals and stuff. And God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He goes, not so, God. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. I'm not going to start now. He goes, don't you call anything unclean that I may clean. And then later, God reveals to him that he's some of the Gentiles, not animals. So three guys show up at his place, said, you, we, want to come, we want you to come with us to Cornelius' house. Who's a Gentile? It's forbidden by Jewish law. Let me stop for a minute, and we'll pray for these guys. God, we thank you for our first responders. Pray you bless them, protect them. And whoever they're going to help, Lord, it'll be way, le- work, way less worse than what was expected. We pray blessing and protection on them in favor Help and healing in Jesus' name. Amen. So going back to Acts 10, Peter has this vision. Three men come knocking at his door and say, come with us to Cornelius' house. Who's Cornelius? Well, he's a, he's a Gentile. Well, it's forbidden for Jews to go into the house of Gentiles. But guess what? He did. Because he just had this vision where God said, get up, kill, and eat. And God showed him he's talking with the Gentiles. So Peter goes to this house preaches the gospel to them. While he's still preaching, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, like Acts chapter 2. They're all filled with the Spirit. And, and then it says, all of them got saved. All of his family and all of his close friends that came, all of them got saved. The Gentiles got saved. After the seven-year period, after that 490-year period. That is a consecutive timeline without any 2,000-year gap. And so I'm showing you God's sovereignty over time. Again, I'm not saying there is no rapture. The rapture is clear in the Bible. I think it's very clear that's going to happen. We're going to be called up to meet the Lord in the air, like it says, in a moment twinkling of eye. There's whenever that happens, when it's, when it's all over. But as far as us expecting a negative thing that the church is going to get weaker and weaker and weaker and darkness is going to get greater and greater and greater, that's not really true. There is gross darkness on the land. There is gross darkness. But the Bible also talks about this marvelous light that's greater than the darkness. This little light of mine, I'm going to let my light shine. When, what makes gross darkness grosser is when light doesn't shine. Let our light so shine and not be afraid of what's going on around us. Amen? So I want to give you this. this, this I get some of this from a book called Victorious Eschatology. Marshall's read it, I think. Mitzi's read it. I've read it. And uh, others probably, maybe you've read it. And um, he really challenged me. But at the end, it gave me hope not to expect this oh, man, we're just going to stay here until the government gets mad enough and kills us all and become one world order and one world government, one world whatever, and then we're all going to die. No, you know who's in charge? God's in charge. He is in charge. He is the boss over all the time. Oh, he factored in all the stupidness. He factored in all our flesh, all our rebellion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all their kids and all their craziness of their kids. He factored that in, divide up in 14 generations again. He factored in the, the, Jesus coming to the cross and coming to the, making the Romans put him on the cross just at this time and dying just at this time. If he knows what he's doing, he knows what he's doing. And I just want to give us confidence that the one who began this thing will be faithful to complete it. Amen. And I want you to have confidence that he who had a plan in the beginning still has a plan today, and we're part of it. So I hope that landed. I uh, hope it made sense. I, can, I could have went into more detail, but I didn't want to 
max out. But um, if there is another verse in there about tribulation, I'll come back next Sunday and I will tell you I was wrong. But as far as I studied, I've done, I've studied it a lot. I, that was the only one they ever use. And you can clearly see it's talking about Jesus. And it doesn't mention the Antichrist at all. So God bless you. I love you. But God is sovereign over time. And uh, it's good sometimes when you heard something that wasn't quite true to look at it from a different perspective. Then you go back and read it yourself, and you can decide in your heart what you believe. And that's all I'm asking you to do. You don't have to agree with this, my interpretation of that. But um, go back and read it, study it, and see what you think. But the whole point of it is, isn't just about eschatology, but is he is the Alpha, he's the Omega, the beginning of the time, the same one who breathed the stars into place and hung them one by one, named them, formed their orbits, and all that kind of stuff. If he had that much thought in the beginning, do you think he forgot about us at the end? I think he, the Bible uses the analogy of running the race and things like that. He saved the best for last. You put the, the best runners at the end of the line and you're in a track rate. The, be, the fastest guy's got to make up time if they're behind. And I think he saved the best for last, and that's the generation we have right now. Right now. You may think, oh, I wish Peter was here, Paul. Here. No, God said, no, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Amen. God said, he, he, just think, again, sovereignty of God. God picked you whatever reason, to be alive right now, right now, for such a time as this, just like he did with Esther, with Moses, and anyone else he used to do great things. He has you alive right now for such a time as this to do whatever God's called you to do. Amen. So don't get freaked out when you hear of wars, rumors of wars. Don't get freaked out when you hear of government this, government that. It is a factor in our lives. It is. I'm not saying it's not. But I want you to know King Jesus is still on the throne. He's still sovereignly in charge, and he has the final say. And in the end, it's going to be better than it was in the beginning. And it's going to be better than it was. And I think the church is going to rise up, and we're going to see a, a revival of things that supersedes our comprehension. Just think, you're like, man, who has this God have been praying to all this time? Like, look at what he's doing. But he's the same God who held the, the stars in their place for Joshua and the same one he did it for Hezekiah. The same God is going to do stuff for us. Amen. Amen. If you guys stand, I want to pray for you. Bless you. God, we don't know how it's all going to play out in the end, but we do know the one who holds time in his hand. The beginning and the end, the beginning and the end. And we just give you all the praise and glory that we can rest in the promises of God, knowing that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. I thank you. You, you factored everything in by your amazing brain power, including our weaknesses government weaknesses, all, everything in. And I just thank you that we can rest assured that you will do what you said you'll do. So I bless your people today. I pray fear of the end times would lift off people that media is trying to put on or religious people are trying to put on. Fear of the end times would be lifted off in Jesus' name. And boldness, excitement, anticipation would, be, would, would wake up in us. 
as we realize who we are and what, that we're part of this great um, plan of God. <coughs> Whether there's one year left, two years left, or 100 years left, God, we want to do our part. And we just bless your holy name and thank you that we have a great God who loves us. We just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.